Jeremiah chapter 9. And it, we've got a few verses we're going to look at uh, this morning before we get into uh, our main point. Uh, just a little bit of housekeeping for you guys who are curious about uh, this month, especially if you received the, the Sunday prep email. Uh, but for those who didn't, kind of give you a heads up of uh, the agenda for January, at least from the pulpit. Um, so this this morning, we're not uh, we're not going right back into the discipline of God in Hebrews 12. Um, we're beginning we're going to begin a new practice this year, and at the first Sunday of every month, we are going to dive into uh, our catechism question of the month. Every first Sunday of the month, we are going to to do that, and then, of course, we'll have it throughout the month. So, uh, Lord tarries, and uh, he keeps us alive. There's 82 of these, so you do the math. Lord willing, we're going to do it, and then once we get done, and however many years that is, we're going to go right back through it. And we're going to keep that. We're going to keep that. Unless something changes, the Lord does something else. Um, but that that's going to be our new practice. Uh, and I, I'll kind of explain why we're going to emphasize that here in a minute. But starting next Sunday, for those who have signed up, you know that our new members class starts next Sunday during Sunday school. So for those that don't know, our new members class starts next Sunday during Sunday school. And one of the things we do in our new members class on one of those Sundays is to look at our church covenant. Um, as I've come to be thinking about membership and the covenant and the class, uh, so this month, sorry, I got to turn on my audio for the back. For any parents and babies that want to go on the back, the audio is now on. I, saw, I apologize. Um, church covenant. We have a church covenant for you um, members who have been here for a while and for those who are considering church membership. We have a church covenant. And um, it's really important. It's super important. And as of this month... I, I will I will be finishing my second year here at Ozarks Bible Church, and we haven't really paid much attention to our church covenant, why we have it, what it means, what it does, what its significance. And so there's five Sundays in January, so we're going to do our catechism question today. And then for the rest of January, in parallel with our members class, we're going to be looking at our church covenant. We're going to begin with understanding why we have it, biblically, historically, what is its intention, what is its purpose, and then we're actually going to look at it in about th- in those four weeks. See what it says, why it says it, what's its meaning. Um, and so I want you to be praying about that because for you members currently, you've committed to this covenant relationship among the people that you sit with, and, I, and so we're gonna we're gonna remind ourselves of what that means. And I think after the conclusion of the new members class, I want us to have 
a sort of a reaffirming our covenant commitment to one another as a body. And so we'll, we will uh, work towards that, and I'll, I'll have more information on that next week. And before, before I move on, you might be thinking, okay, I've never sat in a church where he talked about a catechism question. What is that? I don't even know what that is. Or why are we even going to talk about the church covenant? I've never even read one before. Um, the reason is because one day I, Luke Humphreys, will stand before the Lord and have to give account over the sheep that the Lord has put in front of me for your soul. And so I am committed even if it isn't if it's in a way that you've never experienced or you don't quite understand just yet. I'm committed that you might grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you might understand what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. But because when we forget when we forget that when we are not growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are not seeking to be biblical members of the local body of church the body of Christ, we're missing a lot of what Scripture is calling us to. And so, uh, every it is my hope and prayer that everything that I bring before you is for the good of your soul. That one day, as Paul told the Colossians, that I can present each and every one of you mature in Christ before the Lord. And that's my hope and prayer. And so that's why we might be a little bit doing things a little bit different than some places or places you've been before. But that is the aim. That is our goal. And so moving forward, I got a lot to say in a little bit, a little bit amount of time. And so I don't want to uh, keep walking in, in, in place here. Why catechisms? I've already discussed this with you before once. What is a catechism? A catechism is... It's a, a piece of a paper that has taken the large amount of truths of Scripture and has put them in bite-sized pieces in question and answers so that you might learn the doctrine of Scripture, so that you might know God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You might know yourself, a fallen creature. You might know yourself a saint in Christ, you will know the work, the in workings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the spirit of God, and what we are called to be and do in Christ. Our catechism that we walk through is 82 questions and 82 answers. Um, and so, again, the hope is that you will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to give you really fast... Four passages to make you, help you see why this is important. And I begin in Jeremiah 23, 9.23. Jeremiah 9.23. Because I know we've, we're in, a, we're in a, a, an age of the church where um, knowing isn't that big a deal. Because we live in a culture that says truth doesn't really exist, and so we've kind of we've kind of fallen into this 
pattern or path that says, I know Jesus and that's all I need to know. Well, Jesus has written a book and he's given it to you. And through it, he's given you all things for life and godliness. But in the book that Jesus has given you, he's also given it to you so that you might know God. And that's how I want you to see, what I want you to see this morning. Verse 23 of Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts... Boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Who? Yahweh. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He delights in who he is and what he does for people, for us. And he says that when we understand and know him, that is our boast. That is what we should seek. Colossians 1, New Testament. Flip over. This is one I've, I've worn the, this page out on my Bible. And I've probably worn your ears out with this one as well. Colossians 1. Here's what I want you to understand. To be a Christian is to be someone who uses their mind. A Christian is a thinker. The scriptures are filled with the words mind, know, think, ponder, meditate, and the majority of those in the form of commands. And it's not just so that you would know it, but Colossians 1, 9 through 11 helps us to know why he wants us to know. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. This is Paul's prayer. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk, so as to. So here's the reason. So as to walk. In a manner worthy of the Lord, you cannot, I'm, I'm, I'm commentating now, you cannot walk, live your life pleasing to God apart from being filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But look what he says. Not only walking in a manner worthy, fully pleasing to Him, but bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. How are we strengthened? By being filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But look for that. For all endurance... Think back to Hebrews 11, 10, 11, and 12. We need to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding if we are to endure in patience and joy. This is my hope as we, as, as any time I open up the Scriptures for you. Uh, John 17. John 17, verse 3. You're all aware of the passage. 
And this is eternal life. Well, that's a big sentence, right? This is a big statement. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Knowing Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is the last one and then we'll move on to our question and answer. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I could have gone anywhere in 1 or 2 Timothy for this, but let's read a few verses here. Beginning in verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, who is a pastor, an elder of a church, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Of the truth. And then you know what he does? He gives this sort of catechistic statement, this affirmation of faith. In verse 16, he gives us something, a condensed portion of biblical truth in the sort of way that we will find it in our catechism. Verse 16, he says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And here it is. It's a quote. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the Lord, taken up in glory. That's not a quotation of Scripture. That was a confession that was made in the time of Paul that had been formed together for people to confess concisely the truth of who Jesus is. Now, verse chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Well, I want you to know Ephesians 4 says that God has put me here before you so that I will teach you in a way that that will not happen to you. That you will not be deceived. That you will not devote yourself to this uh, deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. That God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. As we look at our catechism questions, my desire, the hope of the catechism is that you might know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be received if it is to be received with thanksgiving. For it was made holy by the word of God in prayer. And then Paul tells Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine, good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. 
If I am to command and teach things, you are to know and understand them. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believer an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. I read a lot of Scripture, and this is why. Because we need to hear it, even when we come together. Exhort to teaching, exhortation to a teaching. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift that you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Notice that last verse again. Keep a close watch, Timothy, pastor, on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is why I want to do what we are going to do today and the first day of every month until the Lord decides otherwise. Is because I want you to endure to the end. I want you to know. I want you to know Christ. I want you to know God. I want you to know what God has done for you in Christ. And that's, the Lord gave us a great one this Sunday. Justification. What is justification? That's the catechism question. Look at the back of your, uh, your bulletin. What is justification? I would highly recommend memorizing this. I'm almost there. I haven't quite got it yet. Justification is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Every single word in that in those sentences or that sentence has a purpose and a meaning that relates us back to truth and scripture. What is justification? This word, this answer describes part a part of your salvation. That's why it's important. It's describing okay, if we use our common language, what justification describes is when we tell somebody I got saved. That's what justification is when we normally say that. That's what we're meaning. And words are really important. They're super important. God calls Jesus the Word. And then He wrote a book full of words. And their meaning are super important. And the words we use to describe the Word is super important. And you think justification... That ain't even a Bible word. It is, actually. It is in the Bible. Multiple times. In multiple forms. To describe what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Let's, on our way back to Romans 5, pass it and look at... No, it's in Romans 5. We'll just do that. Romans 5. I'm going to show you this word three times in... Four, four chapters in a row. 
Romans 5.18 Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Chapter 6, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And it's in turn, that's sanctification, that's not justification. Here, um, I, I'm ahead of myself. I apologize. What I wanted to show you were the next three questions in our catechism justification, adoption, and sanctification. Three words that sound foreign to us but are very much in Scripture. And they're in, in, in Romans 6. 22, we see another part of our salvation, and that is sanctification. And then chapter 8, we see adoption, which we'll do in two uh, two months down the road. In March, what is adoption? Or maybe I got those backwards, but chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So as we come through this catechism and we ask these questions and we see these words, I want you to understand that its base is in the scriptures. Its meaning is to take you back to the scriptures. It's wanting to show you the work of God and help you to understand it. Now, one more thing before we really answer this question. And I want to read this. Just hang where you are. I want, you to, I want you to hear these words, and I want you to consider if this is you. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. You see, the works of the Lord are so precious and valuable and delightful that those who have received them study them meditate on them like a like a cow chooses chews its cud basically that's what it is <coughs> taking in all that it has to offer and there's the thing about the word of god the works of god the truth of god is you can never, it never loses its taste. Ever. And so we are going to be living a life of studying, meditating, thinking, pondering, wanting to know more about God, Christ, the gospel, our sin. It never ends until, until we see Him face to face. So... I'm going to go fast through some highlights in this statement using Romans 5 to help us. And I'm going to tell you that there are four things and you're going to say, well, you're not going to go fast. Now, I am, I promise. Four things that are in this statement that we'll find in Romans 5, 3, Romans 8... Colossians, I mean, it's all over the place. But here are the four things that are necessary to understand when we read 
the question and answer in our catechism, question number 32, what is justification? Number one, we have to know and understand the effect justification has on the person. So the effect on the person. We have to know the act of God, A-C-T, the act of God. We want to know the work of the Son in justification. And we need to know the necessity of faith. Now, I can spend a month on each one of those, maybe even more than that. But our, our, my goal is to shine some light on this answer for you so that when you think about it, read it during your month, that you've got something to hang on to. So let me just read the statement again. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, if you notice on the back of your bulletin, there are uh, proof text and go and read those. Study those. Some of those things will come up this morning, uh, and we'll, we'll also hit on them throughout the month. Okay, number one, the effect on the person. Justification, the effect on the person. Have you ever experienced a life-changing event or have had a conversation with, a life, or with someone who's had a life-changing event? And they come to you or you go to them and you ask them, well, how did it affect you? Right? That event affected you, right? And when you assume that it has had an effect on them, then you've got this very logical understanding that they were away before the event and then they were in a way after the event. And the event had an effect on their state before and their, their state after. When it comes to justification, something has indeed changed. Something has changed, namely the person, the sinner's status before God. Now, I'm not going to be talking about the person themselves this morning. That's going to come in sanctification next month. I'm talking about today your status before God, your standing before God, your position before God. Now, we've got to get this straight before the sight of God, in sanctification, I'm sorry, in justification, you've gone from sinner to saint in the eyes of God. You've gone from guilty to innocent, from being outside to being inside, once marked as an enemy of God, now a beloved child of God. You see, your status has changed. Your position has changed. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Look at verse 1 and 2. And as we read this, look for the, look for the effect, the change. We're going to see it on the positive side. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's the first. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him... We have also obtained access, there's the second one, by faith, right? Two things that are not typically experienced with your enemy. You have an enemy, right? 
or you're a country and you have an enemy. You're not at peace and you're not you're not just saying, come on in. But you're at war and you are doing everything to keep them out. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, let's just stop there for now. Verse 10 states that man, apart from Christ, are enemies of God. Unjustified sinners, no peace, engaged in conflict with God. And as far as access is concerned, none. The very opposite is true when it comes to an unjustified sinner. The walls are up, the barricades are there, and the enemy will be kept out at all costs. Sort of reminds you of the Garden of Eden, right? After Adam and Eve sinned. And not just were in trouble because they sinned, but they were cast out as sinners. It's in who they were. And God said, we can't let them back in. And he guarded the garden with an angel to keep them out. Sounds a lot like the curtain in the temple. To keep the people from the presence of God and the holy of holies. We must keep them out from the presence of God. Notice the words in our catechism question and answer. If you look, it says, the ultimate result of the effect is acceptance. To be justified is to be accepted. He accepts us as righteous in his sight. What does that translate to? Well, in Romans 5, 1 and 2, it translates to peace with God and access to him and all that he is. And if you look again through Romans 5, when we have been justified, we have been justified with faith, by faith, we have peace with God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith. You, you get things that come along with that, like joy and hope. See, the, thing, the life opens up in this justification and this being set right before God. Now, it helps when you don't start your catechism in number 32. Uh, Question 18 and answer 18 is very helpful in this. Hear these words, and hear these words, hear these words, hear these words. What is the misery of that state, the before justification, right? What is the misery of... Of that state into which man fell. Answer. All mankind by their fall. Lost communion with God. Are under his wrath and curse. And so made liable, accountable to all the miseries in life. It ain't God's fault. And not just the miseries in this life. But to death itself and to the pains of hell forever this is the misery of the state in which a sinner is well that opens up this idea of justification right 
this idea of peace, of being seen before God as innocent, guiltless. Right? We read Ephesians 2 in Sunday school, and Brother Dan touched on it. But in Ephesians 2, these people in this miserable state of sin, do you know what you know what they're called? Children of wrath. And it's not their wrath, it's God's wrath. But Paul tells the Ephesians, this is what you once, he says, this is what you once were. You were seen as God, as children of wrath. And then he says, like the rest of mankind, this is the state, the miserable state mankind is in from Adam and Eve. The misery of the state of sin, children of wrath, and they're headed for a terrible end. See, we're, we're, we're focusing on right now the before that life-altering event, before justification. Because justification is a change of status, of state, of position before God. But there is an end. Now hear me, hear me closely. There is an end for those who are not justified that is horrible, terrible, awful. For at war with God, they are at war with God, forever removed from the joy of the Lord, always an enemy and never beloved. And he returns. You see, God returns to his creation. And here's where it gets really ugly. And we read this Sunday night, guys. I'm sure you all remember. Paul gives detail of the day of his return. And for those who stand before Jesus unjustified, Here's what they will experience. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on all those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. What an awful and terrible day. But the opposite, for those who have been justified, their position changed, seen as saints, as children, a 180 degree difference on the same day when Christ returns. He will, as He judges the unjustified, He will gather the justified, His sheep. He will heal their wounds. He will wipe away every till. He will dwell among them forever as their God and their great king. Thessalonians says that the same day that eternal destruction comes, the saints will stand and marvel at Jesus and glorify him in their belief. On that day, for the, the unjust, the unjustified, The gavel of justice will fall down and you cannot escape it. You cannot escape the gavel of justice of Jesus. And to the wicked unbeliever, the verdict will come and guilty will be proclaimed and the sentence will be given eternity in the lake of fire. But for those who have been justified, the verdict... Is acquittal. Now you know, you know, you've sinned. But for those in Christ, the verdict is innocent. 
and the sentence is not existent, but a reward. And this leads us to the act of God, which will go a lot faster. The act of God. What do we see in justification? We see an act of God's free grace. God's free grace. God has taken the initiative to act. Look at verse 8 in chapter 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. While you and I are still in our miserable state of sin at war with God... Denied access to communion with him because we're sinners, because he is righteous and holy. In that, he still acts. Justification is an act of God. Romans 3 is very clear about this. That it is an act of God, not an act of us, not an act of our will, not an act of our might. For the whole world will be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. No human being will be justified by their works. No one is going to convince God of how good they are. No one will boast before God. But here's the gloriousness of the gospel. Here's the gloriousness of the act of God. Is that he did it when you couldn't. He saved you when you were sinking. He raised you when you were six feet under. He loved you when you hated him. He declared you innocent even though all the evidence said guilty. Guilty. He loved you. The only thing that makes God act to save us to raise us from the dead, to pull us out of our hatred of Him and our rebellion of Him. The only thing that justifies us is His love, His mercy, and His grace. And that's why Ephesians 2.4 just says it as plain as day. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul tells Timothy, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God acted, Christian, on your behalf. Before the ages began, not because of your works, but because of his own purpose and grace. God has acted in his good pleasure towards you and I as wicked sinners who have earned nothing. Well, we have earned something. We've earned God's wrath. That's all we've earned. That's it. But gets us to the, the characteristic of God's act. That's why our, our, our answer says that God acted in free grace or of free grace. Look at Romans 3.24. This is the proof text that comes along with our question. And yours might read a little bit different from mine, but I like both versions. And, and all are justified by His grace as a gift. Yours might say are justified by His free grace. Well, we have to understand, and we know 
I've told you before that grace is what? It's unmerited favor. Grace is undeserved favor. God looking upon you and smiling when he should put you to death. That's grace. Now, I'm going to be very blunt to try to make this point. God owes us nothing. That's what grace means. God owes us nothing. We do not deserve God's love. We sang a song that said, and I don't know if you agree with it, we called ourselves worms this morning. You remember that? We called ourselves worms. And that's what we are before a holy, righteous God. We're pigs, unclean, in our filth. We're wretches, deserving wrath. Dan has made a great point the last few times in Sunday school. That while man sees the outside, God sees the inside. He sees the heart. Well, I'm going to tell you something. That should make you tremble with fear. Because we know our hearts. And when God looks at our hearts, he agrees with Jeremiah. When Jeremiah says that our hearts are deceitful and sick. And no one can understand them. And that... That is why grace is so glorious. Because God sees our hearts. And yet, if you have been justified, He loves you. Explain that one to me. He knows you're a sinner. He knows that you're a rebel. He knows that you don't want His way. That that human heart says, flee from God. But in justification and the act of God, God says, no, you're mine. I love you. Not of anything that you have done, but because I have loved you. He has looked upon us and said, even though you deserve hell, by my grace, I will give you everlasting life. I will take you from the dirt, from the mire... And I will make you a child, a beloved child of God. By my gracious act, I will no longer see you as a sinner, an enemy, but as a saint, as a son. And I will justify you before myself. And you might say, but that's got to cost something, right? There's got to be a cost. It's too good to be true. Like those silly infomercials. Come on. How many payments do I have to make? What is the cost we must pay for his grace, for his undeserved favor? Well, the question and answer tells us that his grace is free. It's free. Justification costs you nothing. And here's the reason why. You have nothing to offer. Your wallet is empty. Actually, you you have a stack of IOUs. And no way to pay them back. 
That's why Isaiah says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfying? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Jesus is the bread of life. Come. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. And that act can be summed up in two verbs. We're moving forward. Those two verbs in that in that statement are pardoned and imputed. And being to be parted, pardoned and imputed equals one status, and that is accepted. And that's why we see that justification is an act of God's free grace, God acting in his grace, and it's free. It counts, it does not cost you anything. And in that act, he pardons and he imputes. He pardons sin and he imputes righteousness. And in doing that, he accepts us by his act, not by ours. Which leads us right into the work of the Son. God's act of justification, accepting us as righteous, as innocent before his sight, It happens by and through the work of his son. Let's go back to Romans 5. Let's look again and see this. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by, justified, right? By his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 15. For the free gift is not like the trespass, which came from Adam, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. Verse 18. Therefore, as trespass led, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, will be justified. Only in the Son. So what was the work of the Son? Why did God send Jesus? It's really simple. He sent him to do what you can't. Just think about it that way. You want to go to heaven? You can't. 
You cannot do what God wants you to do to get to heaven. Look at Romans 8. Verse 1. But yet, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, no condemnation means you've been justified. Guilt removing before the eyes of God, innocent, acquitted. How? Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Remember I said you couldn't do it? How did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus did everything that was needed to please God. And that's why God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He did everything. He took on flesh. He took on our nature. He looked at sin dead in the eye and drove his sword through sin's gut. And you look at sin and you quiver and fold. But Jesus conquered sin on our behalf. In our flesh, he took on flesh to be like us, to conquer sin in the flesh. Jesus lived in such a way as the only person that God can look down from heaven and say, Yes, I am pleased with you because he knew no sin. He was righteous. So in the act of justification... In the act of God justifying, in the act of God saying, you're not a sinner condemned anymore. You're a saint, my beloved child, innocent as if you had never sinned. In that act, God does two things. He pardons your sin and he imputes the righteousness of Christ. And I'm just going to say this really quickly. He earned, Jesus earned the right to be called righteous. But when you are justified, that which Jesus earned, he says, You can count it towards him. He can have mine. Because the only way you get to heaven is with the righteousness of Christ. That's it. But you also get to heaven and you got that stack of IOUs. Remember that? How does that get paid? By his blood. By his blood. That's why Romans 5 tells us the death of Jesus, talks about the death of Jesus. But Romans 3, 24 and 25 says it plainly for us in greater detail. The debt that was paid, verse 24, so justification, you're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. I want you to understand that word redemption means payment. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How did he pay? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Here's what propitiation means. God hates sin. He hates it. He's angry towards it. Propitiation means to appease that anger and that wrath and that hatred. How did Jesus appease the Father and his wrath towards sin? By his blood. He was offered 
as a blood sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Colossians 2 says that Jesus nailed your debt to the cross. You see that? The act of justification can be summed up. God's acting to justify you in Jesus Christ can be summed up in 2 Corinthians 5.21, and you should all memorize it. For God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of Christ, of God. Do you see that? That's justification. A sinner made righteous. That's justification. The final clause in our question and answer. How's it go? Justification is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, here it is, and received by faith alone. That's what Romans 5 says. Therefore, we have been justified by faith in who? In Jesus. Romans 3, 24 and 25 says that that propitiation by the blood of Jesus is to be received by faith. Um, Galatians 2, I'll just read it for you. Says, uh, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because we, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So here's the danger of catechisms. I'm going to admit this. I could fill you up with a bunch of knowledge and you still go to hell. You understand that? There's a good chance that all of you know what I've just talked about. But some of you may know it and say you believe it, but you are still an enemy of God and headed for eternal destruction. Knowledge is only helpful when, when true faith is present. Knowledge is only helpful when true faith is present. And I don't mean believing it as in you're saying, yeah, I believe it, so I won't go to hell and I'm checking on a, off a box. We all know that even the demons know these things and believe them because they're true. So here's the question I want to ask you. I don't want to know if you know it. I want to know if you need it. I want to know that you need God to act on your behalf, that you need Jesus to die for your sins, that you need his righteousness. Or the day you see Jesus, you know the one thing you do actually know is that you're headed for that eternal destruction because you do not know him. You do not need him. Do you know? Faith, faith is knowing you need him. Faith is knowing that without him, you're still a worm in the dirt, a pig in its filth, a blind, wretched uh, sinner headed for the wrath of God. Do you know that you need the cross of Christ? Like you need it. That's faith.
not just knowing to know, but knowing so much that you know you can't live without it. That's faith. And without that, you're not a son. You're a sinner. You're not a saint. You're an enemy. That's why he says, come. He says, come and drink. Come and eat. What is he saying? Come and be filled and satisfied. Don't come and just so you can say, I had lunch. But delight in Jesus. That's faith. When you see that, when your eyes are open to the fact that you're dead apart from it, even while you live, then you know you've been justified. When you see your sin has been blotted out by the blood of Christ, and you don't sit down and be like, oh, I'm glad I'm going to heaven now. But you seek him all the more. Jesus said, come. He said, come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, he's talking to that group of people who haven't had that, 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 that justification yet. He's talking to the people who are working real hard at trying to make God real happy. And guess what? You get tired. You get carrying burdens that you that will kill you. But Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? But he's calling you, he's calling you to find a pardon of sin in his death. To be counted as righteousness by his imputed righteousness. He's saying, come and I will pardon you. Come, I will give you my righteousness. Come and you will be a child of God. And so you have to come to Christ and say, I need you. And not just say, I went to church and I believe that stuff and I'm good. There's a reason why Jesus says, I'm bread or I'm water. Or he says, those who... Eat on my flesh and drink my blood are those who have eternal life. Not in some weird way, but that in the fact that we're coming to the table today and you're going to eat of bread and drink of, uh, of the cup and by faith understanding that without Christ you will die. And so you must come to him by faith and believe on him, his cross, his resurrection, his ascension, the fact that he is standing at the right hand of the throne of God on your behalf and that he has justified you by his blood, given you his righteousness, and now you live for him, for his glory, to be his younger brother or sister and a child of God. You must come to him by faith and seek to be satisfied in Jesus be justified, and be counted as righteous. And you must do it. And you must do it. Come to the Lord Jesus today. Have your sins pardoned. And be counted as righteous before a holy God. Be baptized 
into this body of believers, into the body of Christ. Commit yourself to covenant relationship with the believers that are here around you. Come to Christ. Eat and drink without price. And so this morning we are going to conclude with our table. Coming to the Lord's table. Coming as those who have been put right before God by Him and His work. We come together united in Christ. When we stand to come and take the elements, we come and stand. And in our standing is a profession that says, I have been justified by the Lamb. I am one of you. And when you come and stand and you take these elements and you say that, you say, now help me seek Christ and follow Christ. For we are one body. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one hope. And this table are for those who are united together in Christ. For those who have have made that profession of faith and baptism. And so I open this table. We, Ozarks Bible Church, opens this table to all who are justified in Christ Jesus. And if you're not... Beware. Beware of this table. To come to it outside of Christ is to eat and drink judgment upon yourself. But Christ says, come. Come to Him. Come to Him this morning and find forgiveness, pardon, and righteousness. And then when we gather together and open this table, you will join all who have been joined together in him. Let me pray and then Brother Dan will come up. Father, help us to discern your act, your free grace, your love, our dependency, our neediness. Lord, I pray that your spirit would pour out upon us in a way to move us to to zeal and love that we have not known. That you would convict those who are among us who have not been justified before your sight. That have not seen the the value and worth of the blood of Jesus. They have not seen uh, the depravity of their, their hearts and the wickedness of their sin. Show them their need to come to Christ by faith and to be found innocent, covered in His blood. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Dan.